From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The Albanese government has begun pushing through their agenda in earnest. There's now a Labor budget on the table and a workplace reform package that could change the balance in Australian wage bargaining. But as the detail comes into focus, criticism is mounting and the government has been hit with a week of ominous news coverage about what their proposals could do to the economy. Today, columnist for the Saturday paper, Chris Wallace, on whether the government can sell its agenda and how the opposition will attack it. It's Friday, November 4. Chris, in the months since the election, Peter Dutton's opposition has been sidelined. They've been trailing in the polls. They've struggled to cut through. But it isn't unusual, is it, for an opposition party to take a bit of time after a defeat to regroup and to find their footing again on the national stage? No, that's absolutely par for the course. And it's kind of necessary because especially governments that have been in for a while, you know, they need to do the old clean out the orgy and stable, have a good, long, hard think about themselves and do basic things like adjust to the new resourceless regime. But Peter Dutton's opposition has been so far behind in the polls. Uh, The coalition parties are polling poorly. His own polling is not great. He's way behind Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in terms of preferred PM ratings and also in terms of approval. And so they've been sidelined pretty much in the parliament. Much of the media attention is focused on the newly elected Teals and, of course, the historically high Greens representation. So it's not surprising that the opposition's been sidelined, but suddenly this week and last week they've really come into contention again, at least in terms of the theatre of parliament, if not the polling. Mm. And that's because in the last week or two, we've seen the Albanese government put forward its agenda in real terms. We've seen the budget be put forward. It was a real turning point. So as that happened, as the Albanese government presented its budget and what did we start to see from the opposition? How did they start to shift gear and, and find some new lines of attack? Well, that's it. Many people had simply counted the opposition out pretty much as being relevant or effective. And so I suspect a degree of complacency might have crept into Labor's thinking, uh, at least subconsciously, as they approach this extremely important event in the life of the government, its very first budget. So it was a pretty restrained affair, the budget. It was really fiscally responsible while fulfilling several specific Labor election promises. And it was squarely directed at fixing the appalling budgetary mess the Morrison government left it. Uh, If you compare it to the last several coalition budgets, it was kind of revolutionary in its lack of voter sugar hits and the absence of special interest largesse. So I think a lot of people inside the Labor Party probably thought, with good reason, uh, that this would be well-received, Labor being seen to be sensible economic managers. But two things really kind of interfered with that. The first is, of course, the dominant media channels remain firmly in the coalition camp. And when the budget happened, you just had to look at the headlines to go, oh, my God, you know, there was Jim's power deficit in the Australian, Dim Jim in the Herald Sun, Jim's blackout in the Daily Telegraph, inflation shock rocks budget uh, in the Financial Review, and, you know, on and on it went, just terrible headlines. And, of course, Ruby, there's a reason revolutionaries, you know, when they enter a capital, uh, there's a reason they seized 
historically the radio and television stations first and of course these days social media networks as their first move and that's because it's very hard to get real regime change you know a really seize and be able to exercise power if the old sclerotic corrupt regime can retain power over the communications channels that uh, are the main influence on the populace so labor had not unreasonable expectations that its economic management chops would actually be recognized and if not loudly applauded by commentators, uh, at least recognised for its responsibility and its restrained character. Because, you know, we're in an inflation crisis, remember, and a a low-wage economy which has got to be fixed. But the informed critiques were really overwhelmed by the negativity in the press, and uh, that gave the budget a very poor kind of landing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was the second thing, and that was the 55% power hike that was embedded in the budget forecast over two years. And I think the opposition really honed in on that, on the reality of rising power prices versus what Labor had actually promised before the election. So can you tell me a bit about that? This was indeed the second thing that went wrong for Labor with the budget. Uh, There was this eye-popping 55% power price hike forecast by Treasury over the next two years. And, uh, you know, in the lockup, once people's eyeballs hit that number, they just went, oh, my God, that's off the planet. And that became the overwhelming focus. You know, everybody just completely glommed onto that as the only thing in the budget. And inside the government, uh, there was kind of disbelief almost over the ensuing few days as they looked at what was in the budget compared to what was in the media. There was such a huge gulf. All of the good things in the budget pretty much disappeared from public discourse pretty instantly. And uh, that's a big loss. Governments want big economic statements like that to really reinforce their position. So it was a a bit of a blow to Labor. Mm -hmm. And so does it seem to you then that the Albanese government mishandled this issue or at least mishandled, I suppose, the, the messaging and the public conversation around it? Ruby, the budget is this huge, dense, sprawling document. I don't know if you've ever been in a budget lockup, but it's really extraordinary to kind of get about six and a half hours to go through huge documents, dense with numbers, and work out its meaning. So if you're actually putting one together, of course, you're down in the bunker, all these numbers are running past your eyeballs for days and weeks. It's easy to lose sight of important details which you know, you might be really familiar with and not reacting to, but, you know, you may forget what it will look like to new eyes. So the irony is the government was handling its media strategy really well in the run-up to the budget. It got several good news stories uh, broken out and successfully placed in the media in the run-up to budget day, but they just lost sight of how people were going to react to that extraordinary energy price rise forecast. Labor's budget was a missed opportunity to help you at a time when you need help. It didn't address our economic challenges or inspire confidence. It's a budget which breaks promises rather than keeps them. And of course, opposition leader Peter Dutton targeted right in on the promise Labor took to the election that power bills would be $275 a year lower on average for voters by 2025. Problem, Dutton didn't mention the by 2025 Uh, The coalition is really hammering this promise and leaving out the key fact that the Labor promise was by 2025. The fact is that they got it wrong. And the Prime Minister on on 97 occasions promised 
that power prices would reduce by $275. He doesn't have the decency now to apologise that they got it wrong. Peter Dutton has framed this as Labor's first big broken promise. And Ruby, you know, strap in, you're going to hear that thousands and thousands of times between now and the next election. Well, as I say, I think this is Labor scratching around for opportunities to try and give themselves cover to get out of the promise. I mean, Jim Chalmers in, in question time today said that this is all Vladimir Putin's fault. Right? Uh, it didn't mention what parameters might be. You know, this was one of the problems with making that promise in opposition. Even Labor spokespeople, I would hear, not mention the by 2025. Why would you create such a specific hostage to fortune as that when you didn't need to? We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes. Chris, the other news in Canberra this week is the Labor government's industrial relations package. And among other things, that package is really aimed at finding a way to enable wage growth. But already we're hearing some employer groups could be ready to mount a campaign against it. So why has this package already become controversial? This is a really, really important issue, Ruby. You would be familiar with that, the terrible, extraordinary increase in the profit share compared to the wage share uh, in the Australian economy that's happened over the last 20 years, especially over the last six or seven. Getting real wage growth is a key labour promise. And of course, in this current economic environment, it's not going to happen right away. Adjusting how the industrial relations system works is crucial to solving the low wage growth problem in Australia. You know, it's one of the biggest equity challenges Australia faces. So labour and Industrial Relations Minister Tony Burke have put together this package of, of tweaks to the current system to give working people and their representatives, unions, a chance to actually be able to bargain properly instead of uh, being on their knees every time they go to employers. Absolutely central in this is the ability of unions to be able to do multi-employer bargains. So what is multi-employer bargaining? Why is it so important? Well, if you're an employer, uh, if you can keep workers isolated and strike bargains from a position of uh, massive power compared to them, you're going to do a deal that's worse for the workers and better for you. If you as an employer are facing a union that's not only representing your workers, but the workers and several other employers across the sector, you're facing a bargaining opponent who's, of course, much beefier and more powerful. Uh, The odds are evened up in the bargaining process so naturally, employers don't want it. They want to keep 
workers as atomised as possible so that they can drive the hardest possible wage bargains against them. And of course, what Labor and the unions want is a fairer system where workers in similar kinds of companies and similar parts of the economy can bargain together and get fairer wage outcomes than we've seen over the last 20 years. If I can get it through this year, it means we can get wages moving faster. People have had 10 years where wages were deliberately held back. Tony Burke has been patiently in the public realm this week explaining the package, pointing out that there's nothing in it that's likely to cause economic problems. Well, certainly for everybody, every agreement ends up landing you above the award. So at a time where we need to get wages moving, we've already pulled the first lever. So, of course, the Coalition and uh, their friendly media have grabbed this and it's the other big stick that they've started beating the government with in the last week. Everybody in Australia wants higher wages, but unleashing an industrial relations system with radical changes that take us back to the 1970s is not the way to do it. What this uh, Labor government's trying to do is take the balance out of it and put it all the, all the power back in front of the unions. So I've got to say... And surprisingly, people like um, Senator David Pocock, the quite green independent senator in the ACT who replaced the very right-wing Zed Seselja, He's actually saying, look, this is all happening too fast. I want to look at this legislation more closely. This is the biggest industrial relations reform in you know, a decade or so. It's so important that we get it right. And the government has thrown in a whole bunch of things into this big omnibus bill. You know, we, we got the first look at it on, on Thursday. There's a fair bit to, to go through. And, as in the, in and Labor's saying, look, that could push the legislation out of the parliamentary timetable such that it might not finally come to a vote until next year. Mm. Okay, and I mean, Chris, a lot of the argument against wage growth, it's really being framed as, you know, now is just not the time given the economic conditions. So when you look at the economics of it, how how true is that, bearing in mind that, you know, wages, they have been stagnant for so long already? There are two things about that, Ruby. First is, no matter what the economic conditions are, that argument is always run. I've never heard a time when employers and their supporters in the media say, now is the time for wage rises. That's got to make you prima facie pretty suspicious about their argument, doesn't it? Tim Reid is the President of the Business Council of Australia and he joins me now live in the studio. Welcome to the program. David, great to be with you. So inflation, we're told, will now hit 8% by Christmas. Uh, wages, though, are rising by less than half that. Indeed, uh, I don't know if you saw... BCA President Tim Reid's interview uh, with David Spears on 7.30 report this week, but, you know, that was absolutely a classic. If you look over the last three decades at the split between profits and wages, it's been pretty consistent across the Australian Well, economy. over the last 20 years, profits have risen far more than wages. Not if you remove the impact of commodity prices. Why would you do that? Because commodity prices go up and down. You don't remove that from the wages data, though. Uh, well, what you do is... He just outright made the unsustainable claim that the relative share of profit and wages over the last 30 years in Australia had been pretty consistent. Simply untrue. If you then move to a multi-employer system, mm. then what happens is you've removed the flexibility for different workplaces to find solutions that will drive productivity in their workplace. And ultimately that means there'll be less lower real wages. Anyone who can read a graph can see the really huge increase 
in the profit share compared to the wage share of the economy that's happened, especially over the last several years. Workers are not driving Australia's current inflation problem. So you don't need to worry about that aspect, providing you're not having a total let it rip wages policy, which the government is not proposing. In fact, it could help solve the inflation problem to this extent, pay people a bit more, and you might get more willing to come into the labour market and work. Okay. There is no doubt, though, that the economic circumstances are posing a difficulty for Labor and they're ahead in the polls right now, but there is the opposition on standby looking for any missteps, as we've seen in the past week or so, looking at what's happened post the budget. So how do you think the Albanese government should be approaching this current set of circumstances? There's a lot of seasoned people in the Albanese government, Ruby. They'd be disappointed but not surprised by the behaviour of uh, the coalition and the press and business at the minute. They're in for the long haul. There's so much ballast in Cabinet. It's a really good front bench. There's a lot of confidence internally that they can come up with good quality policy to meet the economic challenges. And if you look at the polls, it's a stain in the polls too. The events of the last week or so have taken a, a bit of paint off Labor's polling and Albanese's polling, but not much. I suppose psychologically, in terms of the theatre of politics, on the other hand, it has enabled uh, opposition leader Peter Dutton and the coalition opposition to get off the mat and get back in the game. So, interesting. I think Labor's calm and, and motoring on and pretty confident it can deal with the situation. And a um, couple of really important things to power on with now. They've got to sort out energy policy in a deep way. I would expect to see a reservation policy on gas, much like WA Labor brought in years ago that's worked so well. And the other thing is they've got to get this IR package through intact. So, you know, expect a bit more love coming from Anthony Albanese and his front bench towards people like David Pocock trying to get them across the line to get those crucial extra votes to ensure multi-employer bargaining does indeed get up. Mm. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, Hillsong Church founder Brian Houston has appeared in a Facebook video to attack the Hillsong board for the circumstances around his resignation, claiming that he was squeezed out by the board of the church. The social media appearance happened at the same time as Houston's lawyer appeared in court to set a date for a criminal trial, with Houston facing a charge of allegedly concealing his father's child sexual abuse. Houston denies the charges. And in the past week, the chief medical officers of Victoria and New South Wales have both issued warnings about a coming wave of COVID-19 and have urged people with symptoms to stay home. A swell in cases caused by two new variants of Omicron have health authorities on high alert, although it's too early to know whether the newer variants cause more or less severe disease. 7am is a daily show from The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. It's produced by Cara Jensen-McKinnon, Alex Tai, Sultan Petro and Shane Anderson. Our technical producer is Atticus Basto. Brian Compo mixes the show. Our editor is Scott Mitchell. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. I'm Ruby Jones. See you next week.